listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, April 1st to April 5th. And what a week it was. Yes. Uh, so many guests in. We were joined by Uncle Larry Walsh and Isabel Morphy Walsh to talk about the Woman Jika Festival, which is happening this weekend, if you're listening to this on Friday. And we also had a chat to the very funny Nina Oyama, who uh, was in talk about her Melbourne Comedy Festival show, Needs a Lift. Very, very funny. It was very funny. Uh, we talked about uh, combining our worst fears with our favourite activity. So many good mm. suggestions there. Eh? Mm. Sharks like, and spiders. Yeah, the- featured a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also uh, we spoke to Sophie Cunningham um, about her new book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death and the Need for a Forest. Yeah, and Lloyd Langford came in to talk about his comedy festival show, Why the Big Face. He doesn't have a big face and we caught up with British writer Kenan Malik about solidarity and identity politics. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Triple R. This show is Breakfasters. The Woman Jika Festival is happening this Saturday at the Footscray Arts Centre. One part of that is the River and Waterways conversation that's involving Uncle Larry Walsh, an Aboriginal cultural leader and storyteller, and Isabel Morphy Walsh from the Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre at Museums Victoria. They're both joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, thanks. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to both of you. Thanks for coming in so early. What's the idea behind the Woman Jika Festival? How long has it been running? Is this its first year? No, Woman Jack has been running for about five years. Mainly it used to be um, we'd have a day of art shows and uh, um, big music night. Like uh, in the past we used to have people appearing such as Christina New... Um, Black Arm Band. Black Arm Band and a few others. But um, we decided over the last two years, this year and last year, well, we decided the year before that it was time because we've got credit, if you like, as we've worked in arts for a long time. So it's for us to start helping the next generation of artists come through. So we have a little woman Jika as part of the woman Jika where we assist artists from or young Aboriginal who are wanting to be involved in arts and doing arts from the age of 15 right through to 25. Um, the idea is, as I say, we know who we are, we know who we can talk to about art shows or get things done. So we've now gone, OK, we've got to where we are, where's the next generation and who's helping them? But I think this year's Woman Jika is really a celebration of um, all of the different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures that uh, are present in the Western suburbs at the moment. Uh, I think that quite often people in the West don't don't sort of know where to find us, but we're here and we're proud and, um, well, next Saturday it'll be down at Footscray Community Arts Centre yeah. from about 12. <laughs> yeah, and so some of it will include, like, um, we are going to have... Uh, a discussion on waterways. It's interesting that um, 10, 15 years ago, I was at an environment and Aboriginal meeting and they asked us what would be the future main discussion. And we all agreed it would be water. And lo and behold, 10 years later, 15 years later, it is starting to be the talking Mm. point. But 
Ours is what we're what what is the importance of rivers for Aboriginal people. More um, than just for Aboriginal people, yeah, for life. Just, no, but I'm just saying for Water how it's done. How it was done was we thought we'd start the debate with some of our history of waterways, mm-hmm. include, if we could, what governments are up to, as in some of the uh, waterways and parks people and uh, Aboriginal perspectives to, we believe, the waterways can be cleaned up and can be um, fixed because uh, we believe culturally we've got an attachment to them, they've got an attachment to us, but we also believe that if Aboriginal and science can work together with the old Aboriginal stories and that, we can make the rivers healthy again. Mm. Mm. Um, I think the rivers uh, the rivers or water has become a bit of a theme throughout the festival this year. Not, not like an overt one, but... Um, certainly, uh, um, there's there's storytelling going on that directly relates to the rivers. Um, even in um, Black to the Future, uh, the second exhibition of a young collective of Aboriginal um, artists from the western suburbs, uh, they will be that they've they, they're even featuring a vista of a river in um, uh, throughout the exhibition in there. So I think this this whole notion, I think what we're seeing going on with the Murray Darling and all of this kind of stuff. Um, it's coming to affect the cities yes. as well, and I think that we can see that, and we want to we want to start talking about that and creating um, art and discourse before before it gets here. And of course, Footscray Community Arts Centre is on the Maribyrnong River. What role did the Maribyrnong play for local Indigenous people? Well, for a start, it was besides um, fish and all that. There was also plants that grew along the river that. Uh, people could utilise like um, there's still um, what they call pig face uh, growing along the river which is a fruit that you can eat and there's also a very small berry that you can eat still along the river there is also a few roots that still grow along the river that you can use there's so much more than that Dad yeah but I'm just saying as a (laughs) plant species wise I usually call it the most romantic well I've gone and given talks about it being the most romantic river in Melbourne, much more romantic than the um, Yarra. But um, my what's romantic about it? Why? Oh man, you get on the side of the bank sometimes because they're high, mm. and you've got a full moon and the mist rolls in. Well, maybe you've just romanced <laughs> on there. And <laughs> <laughs> we'd have to take me back to my younger days. <laughs> My younger days. Um, but I, but I, I, get I to the point I, I of what, why the rivers are important yeah, a little bit I more t- than that is <laughs> that, you know, where there is water, there is life. Literally, when you look at the way in which Australia was settled by um, Indigenous peoples, we're primarily along rivers and creeks and water. water. Mm. Um, we know that we need it to survive. We know that when it goes, um, the land will do just fine. It will recover, but we will not. Um, you know, so I think that it's really, really. It, it, it's also water was a central part of our life. It was connected to trade systems. You've got to think about that particular creek. That creek ran ran clear back in the day. We would have drunk out of that creek. Mm-hmm. It would have been, you know, it would have been one of the the sort of sweetest. Uh, it would have been on on a hot day. That's where you would have wanted to go, as opposed to on a hot day now. We go down there and we look at it and we think it's hard to believe. Mm. Yeah. Well, well, when you look at it now. Right. Where Footscray Park is, it was a series of ponds when, during the summer months, because it was ponds, eels were trapped, 
fish were trapped. People would camp, stay there, get the food they needed. But also, because one side was different from the other, you also had a change in uh, ecology, if you like. Mm-hmm. Like, um, we, on the one side of the... Ba- of the uh, Maribyrnong were basalt rock plains all the way, which meant that we uh, had uh, lots of, uh, well, there was plenty of um, grasses we could use, plenty of, um, uh, what do they call them, corms, potatoes and things that we could use. You mean use. Murnong? Murnong, but all these others. And And the animals would come because of it. And uh, if you were up further up where they call the Ascot Vale Golf Course, mm. it used to be a series of a floodplain which was dotted when it was uh, the river was up with a series of little hillocks where all the birds bred. So you'd get eggs, bird, fish, uh, you'd get possum because a lot of people think... Aboriginal people ate kangaroo, but we did. we did. But when we were in big groups, when we were in big groups, as small groups as a family, we ate more possums. No waste, um, no want, no want, no waste. <laughs> and the possum skins were then used uh, to make our uh, cloaks and our bedding. And um, a good possum skin cloak told you who the person was, where they were from, and their whole life story including the story of their land. Like mm. um, each spot along the river in the old days would have a name. Something happened there, whether it was this is the area of um, the swan, this is the area of the cockatoo, this is the area of the um, the kookaburra. And with each one that had a um, story of creation, um, a point to remembering why it is, now we call it the Maribyrnong, but every bend and twist used to have a name. Mm. Mm. And with that name, it gave you a story and um, it usually meant that's what gathered there or near there because you could always see it there. So the other we're thing going that, to do a swan dance. Well, the, the other thing that used to happen that we're doing again, you know, next weekend is essentially gathering. So um, we used to gather along the Maribyrnong back in the day, I'm sure. Yeah. It would have been um, Narjis that occurred there. So really we're just um, uh, honouring a time, time-long tradition of getting together and communicating with one another and celebrating um, each other's diversity and, and um, abilities. So I'm really, really excited. Yeah. We've got exhibitions going on. We've got um, music performances. We've got uh, live uh, conversations with experts uh, and also cultural experts to navigate sort of um, what's going on with the waterway systems. We've got uh, installation pieces. Yep. Did I say music already? <laughs> yes. Um, See, and do, we're also going to be, a bit know, of PR than me. Um, <laughs> we've also got some fabulous, fabulous stories storytelling which is going to be going on which i think uh when you hear a creation story it it, it is a way of placing it's a way of allowing us to look uh look behind us whilst uh whilst while striding confidently into and the can future. anyone come oh is yeah it just open oh, to yes. uh, it's open to everyone it's the- free come on down if you want to check it out you can google woman jika or footscray community arts center and woman jika is an interesting word it's used as a welcome 
but it also means come with intent. Oh. Um, sort of like um, if we do a welcome ceremony, which one will which happen. Which will happen. Um, the o'clock. idea of the intent is not the intent to uh, do this or that, but the intent to learn and the intent to join. Um, it's we think a way of saying this is our culture, this is all some of the aspects. We'll have people who uh, run the Victorian Aboriginal language uh, programs, for instance, coming along. And again, it's to allow people to know on the Year of Indigenous Languages, United Nations Worldwide, um, it allows us to introduce a few words to get people thinking, oh, what's some of the language for my area because whilst I'm part and Isabel we're part of Coolum which means that uh, 60% of our language is the same as Melbourne tribes um, there are the differences created by the region like I'm not coastal so I haven't got coastal words in my language but um, we have a lot of common words for various things and a lot of creation stories for various things and beliefs. and all told whilst there's five six cool and with similarities in a lot of their language in the east in the east but there's also western district which has its own specific languages the gunai kurnai of gippsland have their own specific languages the uh river people along the murray have specific languages so we're trying to encourage people to add our history to what is the known Australian history mm. and we have been through climate change. We're the only people that can remember it from the old stories. Mm. We're the only people who survived and anthropologists, archaeologists have tested it. We've survived... Um, volcanic days, earthquakes, ice age, we've lived through it all and it is part of Australia's history. And when they say we've had the worst droughts on records, Um, we don't believe it. (laughs) We don't believe it because we've been through it. We've been from places where there once were rivers to now being deserts. So we see that if we can combine the science with some of the Aboriginal old stories, we actually get a better map of Australia's history environmentally mm. than we have because for science, climate change is very new. But also how exciting for us that we happen to all be walking on this, the one piece of land in the world that has had the same, the, like the only place in the world that has had a continuous uh, culture living on it for over 80,000 years. If you want uh, further updates on the timeline in which we've been living here, you should Google what's going on in Warrnambool at the moment. Well, so the Warrnambool <laughs> Festival is happening this Saturday at the Footscray Arts Centre. Probably and best yeah, to jump on the website. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. We, we need to get out of here before the next show comes on. We'll be talking to Uncle Larry Walsh and Isabel Morphy Walsh, Woman Chica Festival, Footscray Arts Centre this Saturday. Three Triple R.
This show is Breakfasters and you're tuned to 3 Triple R. It's comedy festival time. Nina Oyama needs a lift is a show. It's happening at the Forum in the Ladies' Lounge running until the 21st of April. We are very fortunate to be joined in the Breakfasters studio by Nina Oyama herself. Welcome to Breakfasters. Hello. Thank you for having me. Lovely. Thanks for coming in so early too. This show is described as an autobiographical journey. What's the autobiographical experience it covers? Well, the show is about how I have 13 driving offences. Yes. Um, and five suspensions and I'm not allowed to drive anymore because I'm a bad driver and the whole show is basically about how I moved to Bathurst which is like a country town in rural New South Wales um, and it has a giant racing track in it yeah, and the Bathurst 5,000 yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something. yeah. It's got a heat says like the 24-hour, the 500 and the 1,000, I yeah. think. I don't know. But uh, anyway. Did you get on that racetrack and hoon around on it? Is oh, my God, absolutely. Oh. That was like the first thing I did when I got my P's, <laughs> which was probably like foreboding to <laughs> me getting a bunch of speeding offences. But, yeah. So why are you such a terrible driver? It's not that hard. I don't know. I don't even think I am a terrible driver. I think I'm just good at getting caught, to be honest. (laughs) I think I'm a pretty good driver. I think the police just happen to see me in my moments of looseness. (laughs) (laughs) What what kind of offences are we talking about? All of them? Like pretty much all of them. All of them except for parking. I've never gotten a parking fine. Oh, somehow. Yeah, like good at going... No, not good at going, good at standing still, but not good at going fast. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've got red light camera ones. I've got heaps of speeding ones. Not wearing my pee plates is a big one. Always forget to wear my pee plates. Oh, I got busted for that once too. Yeah, but it's like people, the cops, in my mind, the cops don't check you as much if you're you're not wearing pee plates because they think you're on your fools. Whereas if you're on your pees, they'll pull you over. Or like, they'll... How did that theory yeah. work out for you? <laughs> not well. Got pulled over regardless. They got done for not wearing. You so happy about it. I don't know. If you don't laugh, you cry. <laughs> um, so what's Bathurst like for an aspiring comedian? Is there a comedy scene there of any kind? Oh, hell no. I was the comedy scene. <laughs> and now I'm gone and I'll never laugh again. <laughs> But you was you did, went to university in Bathurst, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. I was too stupid to get into any other uni. <laughs> oh mate, so I, I had to drive three hours west of Sydney where they'd accept me. <laughs> mate, I went to Toowoomba. So oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I went to Bathurst. Even that's a bit much for me. Is that in Queensland? Uh, yeah, maybe. Oh no. <laughs> Uh, but while you were there, you met um, you met Angus, your mate Angus, and yes. together you actually wrote a TV show. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So my friend Angus Thompson has cerebral palsy and he's um, really cool and we went to a lot of parties together in Bathurst and did a lot of dodgy stuff, for lack of a better phrase. Yep. Um, and then we made it t- – and then the ABC – we told the ABC about it and they were like, oh, why don't you – here's a bit of money, why don't you put it on television? And so we made a show called The Angus Project. Um, and I was Angus's carer, but I was also his best friend, so I kind of enabled him to drink and stuff, which is probably <laughs> bad. But he wanted to do it, so I was like, hell's yeah, because I like so to So what do happened it. when you lost your life? You couldn't drive him around anymore? Oh, well, Bathurst is pretty small, so I just walked places. <laughs> probably better, especially if I was drinking. <laughs> uh, you were also on, um, you have a role on Utopia, uh, what came first? Did you write the Angus Project after Utopia or 
like during I wrote it bef- I pitched it before mm. and then during Utopia I found out I got the money oh great and then oh. I wrote it during Utopia great because it just seems like you are the second person that has been on Utopia that has gone on to write a really great show like obviously Luke and Celia first met on Utopia and they went on to write Rosehaven so it's kind of it must be a good breeding ground at Utopia yeah I think so it's a good buddy comedy kind of place to start it's good because like being in Utopia was my first real TV job. Mm. Um, I still think... I mean, my other TV job was Tonightly, so arguably Utopia is my only real TV <laughs> job. <laughs> um, but, it, yeah, it was a really great experience and, like, watching the way, like, Rob and Santo and the Working Dog guys really work together and gel together was, like, really inspirational for me. And I'm sure Celia and Luke have that moment too mm. where they take a page out of their book. And I do think I've been also influenced by Rosehaven, like, because that is another... It's, like, a man and a woman in a rural town. Um yeah, t- the Angst Project is like Rosehaven but with a disabled man and on crack. Like, that's <laughs> kind of how I describe it. Hey, so have you lost your license? If you've lost your license, how did you become a black market taxi driver? <laughs> well, black market means illegal, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's in the title. Um, I got. Sorry, that was a real savage burn. No, mate, it's all right. Burn away. Say it. Burn away. Well, okay, it was actually in. In between losing licenses, so what you do is you, <laughs> if you lose your license, it's either because you run out of points, and mm-hmm. then you get like three months to no, oh, have no license, the double or nothing. Yeah, and then you respawn like in a video game, <laughs> and you get all your points back. Which is like, terrible, because um, then I just lost all mine straight away. But anyway, you get there's one way, and the other way is to just like do a really bad offence. And I was doing like, like. 36 kilometres over the speeding limit and so I got an immediate suspension. So, <laughs> so bad. Yeah. Um, you've been so cool. <laughs> anyway, so somewhere between there I got my licence back for some reason and I decided I would – because my dad is a taxi driver. My dad's Japanese. He's the only taxi driver in Sydney and he makes a killing on Anzac Weekend and I was like, well, I'm really poor and it's Anzac Weekend. Obviously the only thing to do is become a taxi driver. Gosh. Oh yeah. my God. You are um, <laughs> never going to get your license back after this show, eh? I've got, That's pretty much it. Like, yeah, I've got a lot of months that i got to do. I'm still on my green peas. Oh, my God. <laughs> I like... I mean, you have to hear more about it in my show. There's, yes, obviously. There's yeah, a yeah. lot between that. There's at least 12 more fines I can talk about. But. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like um, working on Tonightly when that became such a kind of culture war thing? Did you sort of... Um, were you surprised when it got axed or was that like something that you were all sort of expecting? Oh, no, we were just watching it happen. <laughs> like we were all like, oh, well, at least for me, I think there was like a glimmer of hope, but it was still kind of like it's probably going to get axed. And when it did get axed, we were like, yeah, okay. But they were so stupid. They let us go on for another month after telling us that we were fired. <laughs> so then we did heaps of weird stuff. And it was the best. I think that's the way everyone should get fired is, like, get fired and then just, like, a month of muck-up day at work. <laughs> you know, just put, like, jelly in the shredder, just, like, eat everyone's food in the fridge because that's what we did at tonight. Like, we just tore down the ABC and it was great. And no, how- I love the ABC. Please keep hiring me for work. <laughs> it's the only channel that will have me. <laughs> 
And having done all of this TV, how what's the preference for you between doing live stuff, live stand-up on TV? Do you like the sort of being able to prepare to do TV stuff or do you like the sort of adrenaline of being live? I don't know. I think they're two different beasts. It's kind of like making me choose between my two children, mm. you know, um, although everyone has a favourite child, so I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I like stand-up because there's like, yeah, there is a big adrenaline rush and it is live, so you do get like immediate feedback. But TV is like you can kind of control more in a way. I don't know. I know that's not funny, but they are no. two different beasts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. And um, I like both. Can I have both? Sure. Yes. Why not? Thank you. Of course you can, mate. Popcorn You. We were just talking off it. You haven't had a chance to see anything else during the festival. Is there anything Oh, you've... I've seen one thing. Oh, yes. Is and it I'll... worth talking about? Oh, I loved it. Oh, great. I loved it. It's very good. It's called Australia vs New Zealand Magic Competition. Oh, I saw that in Brisbane. Oh, uh, isn't yeah, it the best? It's, it's, it's so silly. It's Sam Campbell, Barry Ward winning Sam Campbell, and his friend Paul Williams, who who's like, I don't know, award-winning comedian from New, New Zealand, Zealand. Yeah. and also like an amazing singer. He has a really good album called Surf Music. You should oh. listen to it. I love it. It doesn't sound like surf music. It's very misleading. It's a pop album. But okay, Paul. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's about these two magicians that are trying to one-up each other and it's very good. It's very silly, but yeah. also a, a lot of fun. So that's the only show I've seen, but it's the best show I've seen. I guess it's also the worst show I've seen, but it's the only one show that I've seen, so I recommend it because I loved it. Well, your show is called Nina Ayama Needs a Lift. Oh, wait, that's the best show. So that's my show. That's the best show that I've seen. Okay. Just relevant on at the forum, running until 21st of April. We've been talking to Nina Ayama. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Three. Triple. Here's a fun activity that we've been doing, something to think about. Yes. Uh, and it's combine your greatest fear with your favourite activity. Yes. So oh. we've all we've done it for each other as well as ourselves, maybe. Um, I'll start. Um, just a quick one. Yep. Quick one for Jeff. Oh, yes. Drinking on a plane. That's exactly <laughs> what I had. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I had. Yeah, so I true. Yeah, yeah. I could tell when I mentioned it to you and 20 seconds later you're like, yep, I've got mine. I'm like, I know exactly what it is. Um, well, um, that's not actually true. But I'm, you do drink on planes all the time. Yeah, mm. and I don't actually like it that much because I'm too scared of it. Do you know planes. what I had for you? What's that? Eating magnums while a plane crashes. Ah, oh, oh. I've got a similar – I've got another one. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? <laughs> yes. Here's don't another one me. for Jeff is the um, along the magnum train. Yeah. But he um, has to get a hug before he gets the magnet. Oh! Can I do? No, that's a, can, just cruel. Can I do one for Jeff? <laughs> yeah, that was very similar, except that you're at a protest yes. and you're protesting about communism being great. It is great, but the protest is a twenty-hour hug, a mass oh. hug, mass oh, hug. I don't think communism would be worth that. Okay, can I give you one? Mm. You're swimming with sharks. Yes. But you're also swimming with spiders. Oh! Ooh. Oh, why? What are these weird noises that are coming out of our microphones today? Can you hear that? I can hear yeah, that. That's sorry, everyone. I... Um, yeah, that's what you were talking about earlier, yeah, wasn't it? Was, it? Yes. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll work it out. I have a similar one. We'll just stop speaking loud. Swimming with sharks would also swim with spiders. It, it's too. Uh, I'm, I'm just as afraid of sharks that I am you as You like spider. sharks, though? No, well, I Yeah, I, but I love spiders as well. It's kind of the same thing. You know how you love what you're attracted uh-huh. to? Mm. You hate what you're attracted to? The, so what I had for you, though, was that you were at an aquarium mm-hmm. having a shark in a tank. So you're safe from the shark. So that's yes. one of your favourite at- activities. But then mm-hmm. the, sh- the shark's back is covered in little spiders. Ooh. 
Ooh. So to pat the shark, you have to get through the spiders. <laughs> oh, it's very detailed. Okay, <laughs> very so well worked out. Almost like you want it to happen, and you're planning to make it happen. So this is obviously similar to mine, but mine for for me. Yes. Obviously, there are spiders involved in this. So mine was. Um, I'm on a ride, like a roller coaster ride, yes. or but uh, on the 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 where you hold on the safety bar that you hold on to, just a big huntsman on it, so I can't hold oh, on. Oh, so he can't hold on. Yeah, That's that is like a, a good torture. one for yourself. Thank you. Tick tick for that. Uh, if you've got your own that you want to contribute, you can send us a text zero four double six nine eight one zero two. Oh, you haven't done any for me yet. I've got out. one for you. Oh, yeah. Um, you're watching a football match. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it's also a competitive eating match. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that is like my, every weekend at the football for me when I sit next to someone eating a pie. Similar. I've got another one yes. for you. You're watching, you're at the footy. Yeah. But then halfway you realise you're actually on air. Oh, that is smart. So mm, you think about what have I just said? The mics have been on the whole, whole time. time. That is my biggest fear. That is yes. very smart. Yes, Thank it you. should happen also when she's playing table tennis. What do you mean? <laughs> because, <laughs> because another side of Sarah Smith comes out when she plays table tennis. Another side of Jeff Sparrow comes no, out I'm when you're going. No, I'm not competitive oh, at all. I, don't, I think we've all seen that other side of because t- he just showed it to I us. I just then. say the C word a lot <laughs> when I'm playing table tennis. <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs> Almost constantly. But that is very specific to when I'm playing table tennis. Just the C word. Yeah, well, mm. during table tennis anyway. Yeah. Um, what are you giving me another one? Uh, oh, another one for you. I sure. have um, you, you're surfing, but the ocean is making eating noises. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that would that's fairly nightmarish for, for everyone. <laughs> oh, oh. Just get back to nature, nom, Jeff. Nom, nom, all nom. of yours are just. I've just got eating magnums and doing various <laughs> activities. <laughs> oh, you know, it's making me want to eat. Oh, maybe I'll get one on the way home. That's right. I've got another one for Jeff. Um, you're bushwalking, yes. but you have someone watches you the whole time. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be a bit creepy. Do you, actually, not, you don't like being watched? No, I don't like being watched. You know, actually, actually, I do have a real-life <laughs> variant of that, is you're bushwalking and people won't say hello to you when you encounter them. Oh, like the ghost that you but that encountered. Does, but that does happen to it you. It does happen. It does my head in. And I just every time someone else comes along, I just end up saying hello to them really loudly and aggressively. But you don't like... You don't like communication. You no, don't but like it's strangers. Rude. It's just rude. You see a stranger on a bush path, you should say hello. And just nod. You have to talk. In fact, you shouldn't talk. Just yeah. nod your head and say hello. Here we are. Here's one from a listener. Dinner mm. at Attica, but with Pauline Hanson. That's a good one. Would you do it? Yeah, for sure. If I said you're getting an Attica dinner, but you're with Pauline Hanson, but you're not allowed to explain to anyone there the reason that you're there with her. So you walk in, there's Ben Shuri. He yep. loves Geraldine Hickey. Yep. It's like, great to see you again. And you're like, here's my guest, Ben, and you cannot explain that it's part of a s- no, stitch up. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> People will just assume that it's a stitch up. I'm happy well, They to might go not. They that. might think that you're just friends with Pauline. Well, maybe I am. I could just imagine <laughs> her looking at all the food as it comes out and just <laughs> turning up and I don't like it. Yeah, yeah, but that'll be perfect because, you know, double dinner. Because <laughs> she won't want to eat it. Yeah, I'm not eating that. <laughs> Give me a Vegemite sandwich. It looks like it's halal. What yeah. about, Jeff, you get a lifetime supply of magnums, mm-hmm. but every time you eat one, you have to have a five-minute conversation with Mark Latham. <laughs> oh. Actually, I do that on Twitter all the time. <laughs> I don't know if it's 
conversation. We're just tweeting abuse at him. Three triple R. You're tuned to Fake Pastors here on a Triple R. City of Trees, essays on life, death, and the need for a forest is a new book out via text. It's author is the one and only Sophie Cunningham. She's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Here you are. This is a collection of thematically linked essays. Tell us about how it came about. My understanding was these are essays written over a fairly long period of time, but in the book they come together so well. Yes, I'd originally pitched it as just a book of essays, but then I found myself unable to... I started trying to join the dots, so in the end it ended up, I think, being more than than just disparate essays. It started, the first essay that I worked on was the one on eucalyptus in California. I was living in California, I started to look, I noticed there were a lot of um, eucalyptus around, and there were also a lot of people that wanted to poison them in very large numbers, and I started to realise they're incredibly contentious, and that the language around the debate was also really weird, like, they were called immigrants and invasives and it was incredibly loaded language and it started to f- feel like part of the broader culture about sort of the need to eradicate um, you know things that people are uncomfortable with there's a there is a real obsession with invasive species in uh, in the northern hemisphere and I which for us say would be a cane toad you know the, yep. the, the, the fear that something's going to come in and, and destroy all your all your echo your ecosystems but that that's all based on this fantasy that there's an ecosystem a functioning ecosystem to go back to so for example if you took out all the eucalypts in california if there's no redwoods or oaks left what are you left with and some animals you know so it, it mm. become i started to realize how incredibly complicated these things were because you can't be dismissive about the importance of native um fauna for example flora anyway so that was the first essay and then I started taking photos of trees a lot and doing an Instagram feed and then people started emailing me about trees and telling me how much they love my pictures and then telling me their own tree stories and it just turned into a kind of thing so it's been going for the tree photos the Instagram feed which is at Soph Tree of Day has been going for about three years now four years or something yes people who know you will know your tree of the day account which yes. you update um dynamic <laughs> a dynamic instagram um, it's also well it's a book about a lot of things but it's also a book about walking why is walking so important to you as a writer because it's something that you've re- you've um written about in other books as as well and how does it sort of shape your practice well in fact one of the the first essay that um i th- was there's an essay in here about walking New York and walking walking the um, boulevards or the, the avenues of New York. I, th- I think uh, this book in a lot of ways is just really about uh, taking in what's around you and that's one of the reasons why I've got my own illustrations in, in there. It's not because I think I'm an amazing, accomplished illustrator. It's, it's that sen- uh, But stopping, looking at something, trying to understand what it looks like and sort of getting to know it rather than always operating on this kind of intellectual theoretical level I find a really useful way to get for me to get through the world but I think it's something we all we all need to do and it's particularly urgent at the moment when you know when we are losing uh, losing a lot I mean the world is changing very rapidly and to me it seems a crime if we not only lose a, a lot of species and a lot of ecosystems but we don't even notice it's happening I really 
I want to have the pleasure of, of, of um, ho- hopefully some of these, um, you know, hopefully there'll be some good news stories, but at the very least you want to know where it is you live and, and, and what it is that's around you. I feel that very strongly, I suppose. So it's a kind of a, um, walking is a form of meditation, if you like, a, a um, that being in the present and, and sort of really owning where you are. I've learnt so much reading this book. It's just There's lots of information on what the facts in here, quite an extraordinary way. Um, and one of one of my favourite chapters was the chapter you write about Alcatraz where you spent time working in yeah, the gardens. Like yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about that experience? Well, if I hadn't been here today, I would have been... Um, I'm now a gardener at the um, Abbotsford Convent. I've become a gardening... Um, From a jail to a convent. <laughs> yes, which is not, not dissimilar, yeah. you, could, you, you, could, you could argue. Um, I didn't have a work permit when I was in the States. I got one towards the end of my time there, but I never looked for a formal job. My wife at, was, was working over there. And I went to an exhibition, IYY exhibition, and I saw... I saw there were signs, people looking for volunteers. Um, long story short, I started catching a ferry across every Wednesday and spent several hours in the garden. And I really fell in love with the place. And I really learnt it's a very interesting place, partly because everything is bought in. Uh, all the plants, a lot of the topsoil, obviously the buildings. Um, Native Americans hadn't lived there uh, before it wasn't sort of stolen land that said it became contested once it was no longer a prison and Native American groups in the at the end of the 60s moved and lived on it for a couple of years so incredibly complex um, political history but uh, and and use sort of working with plants that have become you know you, you can't find in Wales or parts of Europe anymore but they're still on Alcatraz there are lots of succulents there was that there was one particular prisoner Elliot who grew these amazing succulent gardens. I spent a lot of time in his, his gardens, but there are also some really amazing bird life. And so there's something about... It, it, it goes with what I was saying about walking, going back to the same place just really regularly and seeing it over over the seasons is, is something I got a lot out of. It's something that we don't necessarily get so much of in the city, um, that sort of engaging with, with the seasons. And, and it's a, San Francisco Bay is a very seasonal place and so just seeing how different it was at different times of year and you know so I'd be working there'd be the birds there'd be the seals there'd be the sharks that was that was I wasn't there that day but there was a shark like came out of the water <gasps> grabbed it was like the Dave and Attenborough thing grabbed a, a, a seal. seal um all the two it's at the tourist dock so that all the kids are like Look, video. <laughs> and everyone showed me the video when I went back to work next week. I was like, oh, I can't use the language. Everyone was like, I, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, yeah. that was exciting too. Uh, th- there was a sense. It, it, it is a kind of like a high drama place and there are a lot of obviously uh, interesting prisoner stories. There have been battles there. You find bullets when you're working there. You find, <gasps> to- when I say totem poles, sort of polystyrene totem poles from when the Native American occupation was happening and they were they were doing classes on tribal practices because a lot of people had been disenfranchised from their tribes and so they'd... It, it, I don't know. I found it, it was such a small culturally rich place yeah. and every the fact that everyone was from somewhere else including the plants um, I found really interesting as well. Talking about place Melbourne is of course one of your cities of trees and you talk mm. about how the trees in Melbourne are running out of time that within 10 years a quarter of our current tree population will be end at the end of its useful life but you also say it's quite a fraught question as to what to do with the trees I guess it goes back to that question about in, natives versus invasives. Yeah that's right so if and and I will um, I'm sh- different councils might have different policies so I'm not sort of arguing that there's a particular view across Melbourne but 
I certainly know that, say, if you lose a whole lot of plane trees um, on, on St Kilda Boulevard, which is significant, I mean, is it St Kilda Boulevard? Yeah. I'm half asleep, mm. yes. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that big boulevard, if they, the trees are, st- um, are starting, will need to be removed at some point, do you replace them with other plane trees so you capture that settlement um, heritage, the kind of trees that we planted in the 1880s when we were saying we are Melbourne, we are marvellous Melbourne or do you allow the sort of older Melbourne to come through which would prob- would be she-oak um, well, not that they make great street trees, um, river gum, um, manigums, those kind of trees, like what, it I- what is it that you want to get back to when you talk about heritage and people seem to what they mean by heritage is very, very recent heritage. Mm. Uh, this also comes up with arguments about, not arguments, but kind of debates around wetlands, for example, because there's there are proposals for it to make Elizabeth Street a wetland again. Now, that sounds sort of, I don't know, very theatrical um, and, and over the top, but there is some point to allowing that kind of the fact that that part of the city is effectively become a drain, allowing that to happen in a more kind of beautiful, planted way, like a park. So that sort of, it's incredibly contested, that whole that whole field. And um, they're actually, certainly um, City of Melbourne, some people doing some very good work around around tackling these issues. But it's hard, it is a bottom line problem is it's hard to plant any trees of any type at the rate at which we're losing them and at the rate which we need to plant them if we're going to create an urban canopy which is going to offset some of the effects of climate change and also the urban heat island. I mean, a lot of people die in heat waves. It's, it's a major mm. health issue. And it also takes trees a lot of years to become big enough to establish themselves. But some trees, which are really great for plant, for, say, bats, which we love, um, well, I love, not everyone <laughs> loves bats, um, don't necessarily have the kind of canopies you need. So it, what are you planting for? Are you planting for climate change? Are you planting for heritage? Um, and also trees that used to grow well in Melbourne, native trees, and the so-called native trees, don't necessarily grow well anymore. So the lemon-scented gums you see, the bunion, bunya pines, they're doing really well in Melbourne. They're, those are the trees from, from you know, northern New South Wales and Queensland. So we're having to, even if you do go back to Australian native trees, even the type of tree you're going to um, plant is going to change as well. As that um, answer suggests, this is a book about, well, about lots of things, about the relationship between humans and the natural world. One of the stories that really kind of embodies that for me is the story about an animal called P-22. P-22. P-22, I think he's still alive. I became really agitated that he wasn't going to make it to the to when this book came out because it took me so long to write the book. Um, he is one of the few mountain lions that's managed to get over um, t- the two major freeway systems in Los Angeles. So he got from the Santa Monica Mountains to Griffith Park. So he lives in Griffith Park. He has a much smaller territory than you would normally have, um, than a mountain lion would normally have have but he hasn't got as all the newspapers said a girlfriend (laughs) and um so he's alone so genetically it's a bit of a fail like he hasn't managed to kind of break out of that genetic crunch that's really happening to the populations of of the mountain lions there but i heard about him because he broke into the los angeles zoo and ate a koala called kalani and 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 they sort of wrote about it as if he was a murderer like you know, she her mangled body was found. I was, I was like, "Well, he's a mountain lion." I mean, I'm not quite That's sure what, what state is. <laughs> using a knife and fork, is he? Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. So there's this kind of weird. Anyway, he's become a sort of poster boy for a need to have these kind of animal 
corridors and indeed plant corridors, which I think more and more um, countries around the world are trying to come up with as ways to solve some of the various problems that are... um, it's not climate change is not just the issue, and development is also a massive issue, and those two things are kind of really crunching. You, you travel a lot in this book, and but everywhere you go, there is a story to be told about how climate change is ruining the places you're visiting or um, affecting the animal, the flora or fauna. Is there any one particular place that kind of um, got you in the heart the most when you were doing that? Look, I mean, probably Melbourne because it's home yeah. and, and the, the, the uh, south-east Australia is going to be extremely badly affected as, um, and that we see that with the fires. Uh, that said, in Iceland, it's very dramatic when you're looking at these glaciers and I'd never seen anything like those kind of landscapes before and, you know, you go and stand there, it's midnight, everything's kind of glowing blue and there's just so much bird life, it's so beautiful and there's so much, you know, big like ice floats and then you read that those, um, they're not going to be there for, for much longer. That was a bit of a body blow. Yeah. Uh, the book ends with an essay about Ada or Ada, Ada, Ada. Tell Ada. us, tell us who Ada is Ada. And, and what she means to you. She is a, I think, the largest mountain ash. I think in Victoria, not not in Australia. And she is in in Yarra. Um, she's in a, a park just out out of Melbourne, Yarra. God, Yarra Valley. And mountain ash are incredibly beautiful trees. The old growth forests are being very logged. They are they're, they're so many things. They are carbon sinks. They are one of our most significant old growth um, forests. And just to kind of walk through that landscape, which still has that sort of remnant rainforest from much earlier geological times, and then to come out and see this extraordinary tree, and the bark kind of hangs down her like a kind of cloak. It was quite an awe-inspiring sight. I mean, a lot's been written about the mountain ash of Tasmania, and I suppose it's it's, it's a similar, it, it is a similar thing. But um, those ecosystems are, are crashing, and the implications are really terrible. Um, we lose a lot of um, greater gliders, lead beater possums, all kinds of creatures. But uh, it also means that we um, it affects our water supplies because that forest is really important to kind of as a water catch helps capture water in the soil and help it helps with water catchment so the loss is really quite tremendous but one of the things I thought about when I was standing in front of Ada is something that in fact Bob Brown has talked about and that is the importance of I think anthropomorphism can be useful I think it's useful to look at that tree and think of it as a sentient as, as a being not necessarily sentient that has a personality and think through that we might be losing, say, millions of those rather than it just being a forest or a kind of mass of timber. And so I do quite deliberately in the book talk quite personally and emotionally about particular trees I've met and that meant something to me. Um, and, and she was one of those trees. But it's partly... It's not just a... Str- I don't mean intellectually, it's just a strategy. I mean, I think it's important that we really engage with the nature that we're losing rather than just keeping it at one remove and talking about logging practices without... Mm. hanging out in the trees that we're logging and thinking about what we're losing. Uh, I mean, you describe the the era we're moving into as the age of loneliness, which is a very evocative phrase. Is this one of the strategies for coping with this age of loneliness? Absolutely. Um, and the, the idea of... I was really struck when, on a recent trip to America. I spent a few months there 
all the windows are double glazed, there's heating on or there's air conditioning on. It's very whatever bird life or whatever plant, you know, whatever life is around you, it's hard to hear because every, the whole, you're sort of really locked in the house. And I found myself opening windows just desperate, desperate to kind of hear some kind of noise. But in fact, this is happening throughout the environment, that there are fewer and fewer birds and other animals that kind of create that um, the kind of noise that's often in, in, in the background in, in a lot of ecosystems and there are people that have been measuring this. Um, it does feel lonely if you if you find yourself in a place and you can't... I mean, I found myself talking to the rabbits. This probably sounds like me being... Because there are a lot of rabbits in, in, Bloomy, in Bloomington, Indiana. But Indiana um, was much more beautiful than I expected and they're losing a lot of their significant forests. And I spent time talking to various guys, naturalists, to sort of hang out and are trying to grapple with their own political reality over there, which is um, Indiana's a very big... a Trump state, and they're, but they're losing so much to pesticides. And so there is a kind of melancholy in the book, but I don't necessarily feel hopeless, but I, th- I feel like you have to have the conversations and acknowledge it's happening to kind of be a bit more um, forward-facing about what you do about it and think, mm. okay, so what are we going to do? I care about this. So it is a, it, it is a strategy for, kind of, for coping because I think ignoring the problems, they're not going to go away. It's a beautiful book, City of Trees, Essays on Life, Death and the Need for the Forest, out through text. You're doing an event at Readings with Rebecca Giggs on the Yeah, 10th. I think it's an In Conversation um, next Wednesday, in a week, and 6.30. Yeah. We've been talking to Sophie, Sophie Cunningham. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Why the Big Face is a show on it at the Comedy Festival at the Mantra on Russell Street. The person behind it is Lloyd Langford. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. I was so nervous about you coming in because your show is called Why the Big Face. <laughs> and but I, you don't have a big face. You have quite a nice looking I, face. You've got I a had, fairly normal face. I have to walk through the door sideways. <laughs> Uh, so this is a show, if I've got this right, you put it together in New Zealand first off, then you did it in Edinburgh and now you brought it back to Melbourne? Yeah, I've sort of like tweaked it along the way um, and I've been living in Australia now for a few months as well. So like I've written about 10 minutes of Australian specific stuff ah. for the show. So it's sort of like, it's a bit fluid, but it's yeah, the beginnings of the show was about this time last year in New Zealand. What's the difference between a New Zealand joke and an Australian joke? <laughs> well, the New Zealanders, I guess, they share a sort of affinity for the Welsh in that there are slurs about both of us regarding sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? I did not know this. <laughs> I didn't know that the Welsh were in on that. <laughs> we're not, we're not. I'm not trying to propagate it. Well, it's happened now, hasn't it? Uh, tell us about your adventures in Australia, though. You've had, um, You've been out and about. What's happened? We we had a a very memorable time together. Didn't we, you know when when I told you that story about we went um how I went snorkeling? Yeah. Lloyd was on this snorkeling trip and I think we were the only two on the trip that didn't have a spew over the side <laughs> of the boat. <laughs> Ah, nice breakfast radio <laughs> conversation. Yeah, yes. It was, it was pretty great. My girlfriend threw up so much in the sea <laughs> that she attracted fish. <laughs> That the boat captain said he'd never seen before. 
<laughs> I didn't know about that. <laughs> I mean, it's horrific, but that's what happens. Oh. But when you also, you went on a trip to the hospital as well. Yeah, I went to the hospital in, in Byron Bay. I, t- I talk about that in the show. Yeah, tell us about it, though. Um, well, she fell off a deck. A girlfriend again? Yes. Oh, God. Yeah, okay. she didn't have a great time on that holiday. <laughs> She fell off a deck and snapped her ligament oh. on her foot. Oh. And we had to go to Byron Bay Hospital. And I think most of the time in Byron Bay Hospital, they're dealing with um, cases of sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> so <laughs> a snapped ligament, they really threw them for six. They didn't know what was happening. If it wasn't around the crotch area, they were sort of... It was out of their area of expertise. <laughs> anyway, it's a really great story. It's worth going to the show just for that. Uh, also, can we talk about your Wikipedia page? Oh, it is full of lies. <laughs> what do you what's, mean? Well, what's the latest one on there? How it said something about you were born by cesarean. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> it says I used to be a blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Are you a time traveller? <laughs> like, yeah. Tell us, why is your Wikipedia page full of I, d- I don't know what happened. I think someone vandalises it and then newspapers print the lie. If I'm doing oh. an interview, they'll ah. say, or radio journalists will say, oh, I used to be a blacksmith. And then the person that vandalises the Wikipedia page links back to the ah. interview to, to legitimise it. So someone is trying to clean it up. I mean, this is completely above my knowledge. <laughs> yes. like, I have nothing to do with it. So there's this one person who's obsessed with I, writing I, I don't know. lies about you? But every, every time I do some sort of promotional thing, they'll go, hey, so um, you're a voice on Paw Patrol. And I'm like, I'm not a voice on Paw Patrol. And then they get really disappointed. They're like, so oh. are you tempted to just accept that? Yeah, I mean, I'm just rolling with it. I'm just rolling with it. How did you first find out about this? Was when someone asked you if you were a voice on Paw Patrol or was it something else? First of all, it was Fireman Sam. Ah. Oh. <gasps> You do sound like Fireman Sam. He's from the Wales. Ah, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about him like he's okay. a real person. <laughs> Me and Sam go way back. Um, it's called Sam Tan in, in Welsh, Fireman Sam. Um, yeah, and then I, I thought, I don't know what to do, because I'm not on Wikipedia. You know, you have to be like um, a uh, moderator yes. or, a, you yes. know, like a sort of... You can read it, but you can't change yeah, you can, anything. You can change it, but you need to sign up, and I wasn't bothered. Mm. But now it's annoying, because every time I do something like this, yeah. they ask me about my <laughs> cesarean. All right, I also <laughs> also did some Googling of you, and now I oh, feel that perhaps no. this is not true. You won Celebrity Mastermind in 2017. That, that is true. And your subject was a blues guitarist, Robert Johnson. Yes, Um Largely because he died at 27, so there wasn't that much to learn about him. <laughs> he only he only recorded thirty odd songs, um, oh. and yeah, so he and the, all of the biographical details are sketchy as well. So I, f- I figured that that was um that was a shoe in because <laughs> other people would pick like the plays of Shakespeare. You're like, what are you thinking of? Well, yeah, I was looking at that that wiki page for that. You were up against someone whose special subject was the Big Bang Theory. Yes, oh, Jeff. That's, that's, that's Jeff's favourite show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, do you, or do you mean the actual Big Bang <laughs> oh, the Theory? theory. <laughs> no, I'm assuming it's the TV show. Oh. Maybe it is the actual Big Bang Theory. But I, I, because I like quizzes and 
knowledge. Mm. <laughs> I was really into it, prepared, and, and did a lot of like research. But some of the other celebrities, I mean, they were thick people. <laughs> 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 Just in general, they were thick. So it, so it was the TV show, Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a TV show. Um, there was one of the <laughs> celebrities, her special subject was Luther Van Ross, and she got three questions right, and I think I got two questions right, and I couldn't tell you anything about Luther Van Ross. Yeah. They make the questions easier for the celebrities as well. So, oh, so you went on as a celebrity. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm slightly too famous to go on as a normal person, and ah. not famous enough to go on as a celebrity. But they had me on as as a celebrity. Well, it worked out in your favour. Yes, so you're having mastermind over here, apparently. We have. Oh, I think this the similar thing is. Um, we've got hard quiz. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I think that's kind of the most similar thing to. Feel it. you're lucky you weren't asked about blacksmithing. Yes, I was actually asked about. In the general knowledge section, they asked me about a question about a place in Wales where I normally go on holiday every New Year's Eve, and my mind went blank, <gasps> and I couldn't answer the question. Oh. And then I got loads of grief online from Welsh people. Oh, I bet you did. Because <laughs> <laughs> they give you a couple of gimmies, because, you know, just to, yeah, yeah, get, to get you, you going. So did you win a prize? Did you win a prize? Or because it was a celebrity one, did you have to donate it to someone? No. I, I think I had to donate my fee to charity, oh. but you win, like, a carved bit of glass oh. that the actual winners of Mastermind win, um, like a bowl carved by the same guy who's, like, a Scottish guy who only does this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been doing it since the start of Mastermind. Wow. So apparently one of the winners dropped the bowl <gasps> and it smashed. And they said, oh, um, can we get him to replace it? And they said, no, it'll be too expensive. Oh, my God. That's wow, it. priceless yes. item. But uh, I don't get a bowl. Like, I just get, like, a... I think I got a shard, actually, maybe from the broken bowl. <laughs> <laughs> now I think about it. Mounted on a nice bit of wood. That's nice. Uh, so you, you've been... This is the first time you're doing a solo show at the, at the yes. Comedy Festival. You've been out the last couple of years in line-up shows. Are yes. you enjoying it on your own now? Yeah, I think it's nice when you have, like, people that have specifically come to see you. Mm. So that's um, kind of fun. And uh, I'm in the Mantra Hotel on Russell Street, and there's, like, a nice bunch of people there, like other comedians. Yeah. Have so, you seen other shows? Um, I've seen two other shows. I saw Michelle Wolf. Oh, yes. Um, at the Town Hall. And then yesterday I saw Carl Donnelly, who's um, the comedian on In the Room before me. Oh, perfect. that means your show's going well. If you can, if you've got the mental capacity of watching your show before yours, that means it's good. Don't oh, you think? Yeah, maybe I just don't take my job seriously. <laughs> <enough. laughs> uh, you've done a lot of TV writing as well. Do you prefer writing or performing? Or are they just completely different? Uh, I mean, it's nice to mix it up, and also um, TV writing. Like I've been lucky enough to write for friends of mine as well, and it's always nice, like to write a joke and give it to someone and that you, it wouldn't suit you. Mm. So you're just like, you can do something with that and I'll still get paid for it. You're, you're <laughs> going to be like an old man in a pub in 50 years just going, oh, there's one for you, you can take that home. <laughs> the, the great thing about writing for television as well is that um, I get money twice a year from TV shows I've written on and they send you a list of 
how um, the money breaks down. And so oh, occasionally oh. they'll be like, here's one pound because an episode of a TV show you wrote was shown in Estonia. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, great. Thanks very much. Yes, thank you. you. Off to the shops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the show is Why the Big Face. As we said, it's on at the Mantra at on Russell. We've been talking to the person behind it, Lloyd Langford. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Kenan Malik is a writer, lecturer and broadcaster whose work has appeared in the New York Times, The Observer and many other places. His books include The Meaning of Race, Man, Beast and Zombie, Strange Fruit, Why Both Sides Are Wrong in the Race Debate and The Quest for a Moral Compass. He's in town discussing identity politics for the Wheeler Centre, but he's dropped into the Breakfaster studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you. Nice being here. Now, you first became politically active in Britain in the 1970s, and that was a time of extreme racism when the National Front was growing. I think at one stage became the fourth largest party in Britain. Eric Clapton is famously denouncing um, immigrants. What did that period teach you about identity and the politics of identity? Well, Britain was a very different place then. Uh, um, I wasn't politically active in the 70s, so I'm not that old. <laughs> but I, was, I, I grew up in the 70s, certainly, and Britain was a, was a very different place. It was a kind of place where racism was visceral and vicious. It was a kind of place, you know, I'd come home... If I came home from school without a black eye or without having a bruise, it'd be a lucky day. You know, it's one of the... It was, it was, it's very, very different from what it is now. In the 1980s, um, when it, I used to organise... Uh, patrols, street patrols in East London to protect Asian families from racist attacks. I mean, you don't, you can't imagine Britain like that now. I mean, it's still racist, but it's not of the, of the same kind. But so it was racism that drew me into politics. Um, but interestingly, it was politics that made me see there was, took me beyond racism. In other words, that made me see that there's more to injustice than the injustice has done to me. And that when I think about with whom, the kinds of people I have um, affiliation to, a solidarity with, I realise that there are lots of people who have the same culture or skin colour or ethnicity as me, but whose political values are very different. But there are also lots of people whose culture or ethnicity or faith or, 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 or skin colour is very different from mine but with whom I have an affinity because of their political values. In other words, identity in terms of culture or, 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 or skin colour is meaningless in terms of the values that one holds. And that was a very important, uh, I suppose, period and lesson for me about the relationship between identity and values. Because we think about I, that, that relationship in a very different way now. Today, the way that you are, the identity that you have, whether you're white or Muslim or gay or Australian or English or European, in a sense shapes the way you think about the world. There's a kind of package of values and ideals that come with your identity. And that's very different from the way I grew up and and, Mm. and the kind of political lessons I had. So I think something's changed. Something's changed quite dramatically. And a lot of my thinking over the past 20, 30 years has been about 
what has changed and what is what are the consequences of those changes and you say that the way that identity is thought about now is an akin to an idea that was originally associated with the right rather than the left can you yeah, un- well, unpack we, that for us yeah we think about identity politics as a politics of the left as the politics of minority groups um, and those fighting oppression but historically the roots of identity politics before it was called identity politics um, lies on the right and the first the original politics of identity was racism the idea that um, your skin colour the race or ethnicity to which you belong somehow defined you defined your rights defined your value defined your needs and aspirations and it was not till the post, in the post-war world when those on the left began to take up the politics of identity. Previously, all the great social movements that brought about the contemporary world, um, from the anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements, from the fight for women's suffrage, from uh, the battles for gay rights, the struggle against apartheid and so on, were all struggles against identity politics because there were struggles against the idea that you define people by their identity. The fact that you are black or the fact that you are a woman somehow defines you and defines your rights and your needs and your, and your aspirations. So all those great struggles were actually struggles against the politics of identity. And those who were at the forefront of those struggles did, it from, did so from a universalist perspective, the idea that all people should have the same rights uh, by virtue of being human. Um, and that equality meant that whatever your differences in uh, terms of race or culture or ethnicity or religion, you should be treated the same. Whereas now, equality has come to mean more. Not you should be treated the same be, uh, despite your differences, but you should be treated differently because of them. And that is a major shift that has taken place. Couldn't people respond, though, by saying that identity can be a way into these broader struggles? A little bit like your own example, I guess, that you realise that you're being victimised because of your ethnicity or your skin colour. You solidarise... Solidarise. Solidarise. too early in the morning. You know what I mean. (laughs) You identify with other people who are the victim of that particular (coughs) oppression and in the way, along the way, you begin to take on broader sure. issues. And people say more than that. They'd say that the identi- uh, politics of identity is simply a way through which minority groups, uh, groups, oppressed groups, f- uh, f- organise their struggles against their oppression, against discrimination. Um, so uh, women's rights, uh, gay rights, all those struggles are struggles uh, around their identity. And that is true to an extent, though, as I suggested earlier, that these are also struggles against the politics of identity, against defining people and their rights by their identity. I think the problem with, um, with identity politics and the, and the idea that you can use these, the politics of identity to overcome discrimination, oppression and so on, is that if we really want to overcome discrimination oppression we need broader social change we need to change the very structures of society that discriminate against groups by virtue of their identity and in the past if you look back to the 60s say with uh, 
the black rights movements, women's rights movements, um, uh, gay rights movements, those movements were linked to those broader struggles for social change. Today, they're not. Those broader struggles have largely disappeared. And recognition of identity has become not a means to an end, in the way you were talking about, but an end in itself. And so, rather than transform society, what people really end up doing is, is saying, can we have a fairer society within these exploitative structures? A fairer society within a, an unequal society? Mm. Because I, I, I guess that touches on a, um, an issue that comes up a, a, a lot, particularly in the, in the media landscape, um, where a lot of the political arguments today are around representation mm-hmm. in culture and, and media and, and, and so on. How important do you think issues of representation are, which are often at the forefront of people's discussions about race and gender these days in terms of fighting sexism and racism? Representation is very important, clearly, um, and that a, a, a diverse or a, or a society or a, a, a parliament, say, that reflects that society um, is a good. However, I would also say that I would rather, far rather be represented by somebody who doesn't look like me, who doesn't share my identity, but who shares my values, than somebody who shares my, who looks like me, has my ethnicity or culture, but doesn't share my values. I mean, in Britain, we've had two women prime ministers. Now, we might say, brilliant, and in one mm-hmm. sense it is. But those women, both women prime ministers were pretty um, horrendous in their politics. I would rather have had male prime ministers who've, who were um, uh, much better in their politics than the kind of politics that have been imposed through Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. Mm. Um, I, again, another of the main focuses of these debates today is to do with language and particular terminology and so on. I think it, for many people that's where they encounter these debates first and foremost. Isn't there a long tradition of particular terminology, particular language being central to people's struggles for justice? I mean, you're talking about the 60s before, but of course, you know, Martin Luther King, the letter from Birmingham jail says, you know, we are sick of being called these in, these insulting terms. Malcolm X adopts a new name and so on and so forth. What's wrong with that focus on getting language right? Well, there's nothing wrong with it in, in itself on, on getting language right. I mean, in, in the sense that um, if we want to change de- the use of derogatory terms for uh, black people or women or Asians and so on, that's fine. I, I used to be, a, you know, for years we were called Pakis um, in in Britain, yeah. and packy bashing was was a was a national sport. Um, I'm glad those days are over, um, and then nobody would call me a packy to my face. Or rarely would call me a packy to my face. But that's not the same as saying that you can transform society by making those changes. Those changes come about because society has been transformed, not not the other way around. By changing those the way people are are are. are uh, are seen or or designated you don't change society if you change society then people are treated with greater dignity and therefore those kinds of derogatory names go by the wayside so how do you change society though well that requires struggles against um uh, both specific forms of oppression whether mm-hmm. you're talking about racism or women's oppression but it also requires a broader kind of Change the, the, the kind of change that says, what kind of economic structures do we want? What, how do we want to organise um, 
the way we we, we are treated at work. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the issues, for instance, um, we have now is that of the casualisation of work. The, the rise of the gig economy. It's, it's a big issue in Britain and Europe. Presumably it's a big issue in, in Australia as well. And that the people who most suffer from the casualisation of work are those at the bottom of society. Minority groups, migrant groups and so on. Because they're the ones who, who normally work within um, a casualised labour force. The politics of identity um, doesn't deal with that. The recognition of particular identities doesn't deal with the fact that economically uh, we're, uh, it's migrants who are exploited at that level. Um, and so we need not just uh, for identities to be recognised, for people to be recognised um, so that uh, they're afforded a certain dignity, but also that dignity comes from how they're treated at work, what kind of relationship you have with bosses with 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 with, with um, corporations and how we organize structure society so that the needs and aspirations of working people of working class people take precedence over the needs for profit for instance in australia though like a look our leaders are using race increasingly particularly to kind of define things like our border politics how do how do we influence that how do we stop that conversation I'm always struck by the way that um, immigration policy, whether in Australia or, or in Europe, um, has never really been challenged by liberals or by the left. In the sense that, I mean, I come from Europe, and a lot of European policy, immigration policy, has been borrowed from Australia, offshoring, for instance, um, and it's been borrowed and taken up a, a few notches. The EU has organised a series of deals with countries like um, Libya, Morocco, Eritrea, Niger, Turkey, whereby these countries become responsible, in effect, for EU migration policy. They are paid millions to detain, lock up potential migrants to, to Europe. So what the EU has created is a what you might call a, a detention a kidnap and detention industry right across North Africa and the borders of Europe when it comes to immigration isn't at the edges of Europe it's somewhere out in Africa because those are the countries that deal with, with, with European migration policy it's a scandal it is one of the most immoral sets of policies we have at the time but nobody talks about it people talk about freedom of movement there's a big debate about freedom of movement in the context of Brexit for instance but that freedom of movement, I'm all for for the freedom of movement, but that freedom of movement has been bought, the freedom of movement for Europeans, for those within the EU, has been bought at the expense of the creation of Fortress Europe and a, and a, and a uh, kidnap and detention industry in North Africa. And liberals don't talk about it. So th- they will talk about Trump, Donald Trump on the, on the wall in Mexico. Um, on, on the US-Mexican border. But nobody talks about what's happening in Europe. And as, I, as, I, as far as I know, nobody really talks about migration policy in, 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 in Australia either or, or, or the immorality of so much of migration policy here. And that's part of the problem because the, the more explicit uh, uh, articles, talks, um, which demonise migrants or Muslims are easy to spot. The more implicit 
uh, arguments. Um, the policies which present an image of a continent under siege from migrants, being um, overrun by migrants, which is what these policies do, um, we very rarely challenge those. And they're in many ways more important to challenge. The, 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 the explicit demonisation is easy to spot. The implicit acceptance of that demonisation mm-hmm. through policies is much harder to, to recognise, but mu- therefore m- much more um, important to challenge. I was going to ask you what a world without racism might look like, but you would have literally one minute in which to answer, and that <laughs> possibly would not be fair. Kenan Malik is in town for the Wheeler Centre. You can catch him in Bendigo speaking at the Capitol on April out. Thank you so much, Kenan Malik, for coming on the show. Pleasure. Thank you. You're in Triple R. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R.